is the Progressive Commentary Hour. The theme of today's program, an in-depth examination of the World Health Organization, the Pandemic Treaty, and the international health regulatory agencies and countries that are saying, sign us up, or a few that are saying, not so fast, or outright, we're not going to do this. Why is this important? The average person thinking, well, Gary, I'm I'm sitting here in, I'm standing here in Little Rock, Arkansas, in my apartment, and I'm 68 years old, and I don't think this has anything to do with me. Or I'm in India. We're heard all over the world. Yes, it has to do with everything involving our health. Why should we trust the World Health Organization to begin with? Why should we sign a treaty? And would you even know that the treaty was signed? Probably not, because it's being done very quietly. So we brought a person in. His name is James, J-A-M-E-S, Roguski, R-O-G-U-S-K-I. He is an independent researcher. He's an author. Uh, he is a very uh, consummate activist, and he's been on the forefront to expose the hidden agenda in the World Health Organization's Global Pandemic Treaty. In March of 2022, James uncovered documents that proposed amendments to the International Health Regulations. That's an independent or international legal instrument adopted in 2005 at the 58th World Health Assembly and legally binding for 194 countries. The International Health Regulations cover pandemic response measures for preventing the spread of infectious diseases across the national boundaries. James has been dedicated to bringing greater awareness about the World Health Organization to our attention, especially when it involves them overtaking our sovereign rights. So whatever we want to do in our country, whatever our freedom of choice is, if the World Health Organization's treaty says, no, you don't have that freedom anymore, you must take this vaccine or this drug or you must... You must do what we're telling you to do, whatever that it is. Then you won't have a choice. Your own government won't have a choice. And this is important because, remember, when this treaty is passed, it will make legally binding law that supersedes anything in the United States or in Canada. Right? In addition to its coverage of the World Health Organization Pandemic Treaty, James has also written about the COVID-19 pandemic, corruption, and conventional medicine. And uh, also his website is jamesroguski.com and James blogs at jamesroguski.com. Nice to have you with us today, James. Well, thank you so very much for having me. James, I would like to begin by comparing the World Health Organization's pandemic treaty as a Trojan horse, which in Greek mythology was a subversive act by the Greeks to infiltrate and bring forth the collapse of the city of Troy. When we consider that this new treaty 
as a rewriting of the international health regulations comes on the heels of the COVID-19 pandemic, a flurry of different SARS viral strains, and a variety of threats about new pandemics on the horizon, we should be suspicious that the treaty is nothing less than a pig with lipstick, a hollowed gift being offered to the global community to assure people that the World Health Organization and all nations who sign on to it are acting in good faith for public health. But, like a Trojan horse, what matters is what this beast contains within it. So perhaps to put the treaty and the controversies surrounding it into a broader context, please begin by summarizing what you first uncovered in March of last year regarding documented amendments to the international health regulations. And then follow that, if you would please, with the confusion some people may have about the amendments to this and the actual pandemic treaty, or are are they a kind of package deal together? And then this is this is who the World Health Organization project is really meant to be empowered of. What is their end goal? Why are they doing this? And let's start at that point. The form is yours. Well, there's there's quite a lot of things wrapped up in that question, and I'll do my best to answer it. The um, documents that I uncovered uh, back on March 28th, 2022, had actually been submitted to the World Health Organization by the Biden administration more than two months prior to that, on January 18th, 2022. And there were proposed amendments to 13 different articles in the international health regulations which are an existing uh, body of international law and very quietly this was submitted and no talk you know really went on about it until i found it and started um, raising the issue and the very last article article 59 uh, the biden administration sought to speed up the process for any amendments in the future the current state of affairs in the international health regulations is that nations would have 18 months with which they could reject whatever amendments may be adopted by the World Health Assembly, which for all the nations get together, they meet once a year. They would have 18 months to reject amendments and 24 months to actually put them into uh, action and, and craft legally binding uh, enacting legislation within each nation. Biden sought to shorten those time periods down to six months, to have only six months to reject and six months to implement. And if you look at the calendar and you understand um, United States politics, uh, if the next round of amendments were to be considered at the end of May in 2024, six months past that date, would still be within the Biden administration's term of office. So they were seeking to set the stage to ram through a large package of amendments. There is a second set of amendments. We'll, we'll come to those in a moment, and then we'll get to the treaty, or, or now they're calling it the agreement. So there are three separate documents, and almost everybody gets them all jumbled together. 
There were amendments that the Biden administration tried to push through in 2022. There's a new package of amendments, over 300 amendments. And then there's a separate new, uh, now they call it the pandemic agreement, which is being negotiated, again, shooting for May of next year. Well, what happened uh, 18 months ago was many nations looked at the Biden's proposed amendments and they just flatly said no. And it was clearly known before the assembly in May of 2022 that that was not going to fly. So at the last minute, the Biden administration, along with um, Great Britain and the European Union, and a handful of other nations, I feel illegitimately submitted a new package of amendments um, in the middle of the assembly, which is in violation of the rules that they have to do so four months in advance so that they can um, give everyone in the world a chance to see what's going on. And, and those were uh, maybe, maybe not adopted. And the reason I say that is the process by which um, I'll just say they pretended to adopt those amendments is, is very suspect. Um, they have not been able to show evidence that they conducted a proper vote. And if you look at your calendar, you realize that tomorrow, December 1st, is the deadline that is 18 months from the time they were adopted and everyone was notified, if, if they really were adopted. And on November 28th, uh, a dozen members of the European Parliament wrote a letter to Tedros Ghebreyesus, the director general of the um, World Health Organization, and demanded that by high noon on November 30th, um, Geneva time, which uh, I believe has already passed, uh, they demanded that he show evidence that there ever was a vote on those amendments. Now, you know, we've had some election integrity issues in the United States for sure, but the World Health Assembly seems to be able to not even have a, a vote um, and pretend as if they did. Now, going, going forward from that, the second round of amendments um, have been in hiding for almost a year now. And what I mean by that is uh, at that same meeting, they set forth a process where they created a working group for additional amendments to the international health regulations. And they set a deadline for September 30th of 2022. And before that date, 94 nations submitted 197 pages of amendments to the international health regulations total of 307. they they kept them very secret until mid-december and they did reveal them in mid-september i'm sorry mid-december i've been reporting on them you know many 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 articles since then but we have not seen a new version at all all of the negotiations have been very, very much in secret. They've had many, many different meetings. Their next meeting, which they had hoped was going to be their last meeting, um, is set for Thursday and Friday, December 7 and 8. Now, we may or may not get to see uh, whatever the status is of their negotiations. The, they were hoping that that was going to be their last um, meeting, that they would then uh, give the whatever they come up with at that point 
to the uh, International Health Regulations Review Committee so that they can dot all the I's and cross all the T's because it's they have an obligation to submit it officially to the WHO before January 27th, which is four months in advance of the May 27th start of the next World Health Assembly. Well, back at the beginning of October at their previous meeting, the co-chair said very clearly that they are not going to meet their deadline. They're, they're very, very, very far from an agreement. The nations all have many different ideas and they're not coming together. And they brought out their legal counsel, um, Stephen Solomon, who spent uh, about five minutes explaining one line in Article 55 of the International Health Regulations, which says as clearly as clearly could be that, you know, there's a deadline and they know it of four months before the assembly. But then they spent about an hour explaining how they were going to just break that rule. And subsequent to that, they scheduled meetings for February and April, and they have said that they're going to continue negotiating until the bitter end, you know, just before the assembly, in the hopes of trying to bring the nations together in clear violation of the rules. So, you know, I feel that on, on one of my, you know, a couple of my articles, uh, I have evidence of a conspiracy to break the rules. It's not a theory that they clearly stated what they're doing and they've scheduled it. Now, the third document, which many people call the pandemic treaty, you properly described it as a Trojan horse. And uh, right now, as we speak, there is an ongoing conference of the parties, um, 28, I believe it is, for a different issue, the framework convention for climate change. Now, that was passed and passed by the Senate as a treaty in 1992. All of the members of the United Nations are a party to that. And they meet year after year after year. And whatever they decide, all of the nations are obligated to do. And so that is the type of document that they're trying to uh, have nations adopt next May. Uh, essentially a framework convention for pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response. And in my personal opinion, that would be the craziest thing that the nations could do because it would set up a brand new bureaucracy. And, you know, this is where the Trojan horse analogy comes in, you know, very cleanly. That, oh, you know, we're, we're trying to prevent the next pandemic, but... If you read the details of what's in their current draft, it would do exactly the opposite. They want to set up a system that would go searching across the world for pathogens with pandemic potential, bring those pathogens into a new laboratory network run by the WHO and financed by billions of dollars to then, you know, have it open for gain of function and the development of what they call pandemic response products, but I think other people refer to as biological weapons research. And the very thing that might actually cause the next pandemic is what they're setting up a multi-billion dollar system to do in the name of health. And, and so if nations allow them to put whatever they want in the first 
version that is accepted as a framework convention for pandemic prevention, the new bureaucracy, the conference of the parties, would then meet year after year after year after year, and whatever protocols they might decide, um, it, it would be obligatory if the nations essentially sign you know, a blank check or, or a framework convention agreement. If you just look at the insanity going on with climate change and, you know, energy and all of the things that are coming out of these conferences of the parties, now the 28th, um, dealing with climate change, uh, it's about the worst thing I could possibly imagine the nations agreeing to. I appreciate that introduction to the issue. Thank you. Here is my issue, and I'd like you, if you would, please to address it with facts. I will deal with that myself. For example, when word got out in the alternative media that the, the virus was originated or at least tested and released, accidentally, let's assume for the moment, from the Wuhan lab, there was a, a lot of no, it could not have, it came from nature, and there were a whole group of scientists that signed on. A it was published in the Lancet, saying this was a, this was not from humans making this. This came from animals. And Anthony Fauci, under oath before Congress, made such a statement in one of the committees that uh, this is absolutely from nature. Well, what we did not know at that time was that Anthony Fauci had been funding through his National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease gain-of-function research all around the world. In fact, only after Russia invaded Ukraine did Gloria Newland, under, under testimony, uh, make a statement that, oh yeah, there are over, I think she said 23 uh, biological labs. Labs in the most corrupt and the most insecure country on the planet, and that is Ukraine. Why in the world would you put biological labs there then we found out they're also in Africa, and they're all over the United States. People didn't know this. Now, I wrote an article about human experimentation by the government in over a thousand different uh, cases back in October of 1989 about the secret testing of all kinds of biologicals on the people without their knowledge or consent. But then Congress got involved and said, we can't do that anymore. And then we thought that it ended. No, it, it accelerated. So now, here's where the World Health Organization comes into this in a very nefarious way, in my opinion. So they finally says, well, okay, we're, we, the World Health Organization, uh, we're going to go into Wuhan. We're going to do an in-depth investigation, objectively, fairly, openly, with full transparency, and we'll bring back the evidence. Everyone said, fine, because they all trusted the World Health Organization. So who do they select to head the investigation? Peter Dest, who's he? He is one of Anthony Fauci's top people to do funding. What did he brag about in an interview, I think it was in Hong Kong or Singapore, about a dozen years ago, that he was doing gain-of-function research, that they could manipulate the viruses? adding something into it. What did, uh, what did the Institute Pasteur 
and Luc Montagnier, who won the Nobel Prize, <clears throat> and his group find that someone had manipulated the SARS virus and the cleavage to include an HIV virus, meaning someone was trying to create AIDS symptoms and conditions. But another group of scientists found that Christoph Jacob disease or mad cow disease was also inserted. So now we have a biological weapon. This is made in a lab, and it was meant to hurt people. It was meant to kill people. But who did it? Why would they do it? What was their motive? So what they did is not in question. We have the evidence, and it's overwhelming. But then here's the bad part. This same Peter Desick was the one who funneled money from Anthony Fauci's National Institute of Infectious Disease and Collins U.S. Public Health Service to a man named Reed down at the University of North Carolina and to other centers around the world, including to DARPA and the Defense Department. So you have a person that is a part of the problem, supposedly leading the so-called objective review to tell us the truth. So they go into China, they do their investigation, come back and, of course, say, well, we don't believe it was caused in the lab. And therefore, Anthony Fauci goes forth and other scientists saying, yeah, this, this is not a lab. In fact, if you mentioned that it was from the Wuhan lab, you were called xenophobic or you're just blaming China. But now one of the best journalists in the world that I have not seen interviewed once on any American television, she writes a book. She has people she interviews, including biologists and scientists in Wuhan, in China, a different lab, saying, oh yeah, this was made by the Chinese Communist Party's Defense Division, where they had 99 PhDs in virology doing this gain-of-function research, and theirs was for weaponizing. So, why is that never discussed never brought forward in any of the American media. And it's challenged by the media. It's, oh, you're just attacking China. I mean, just, this is what happened. Now, Peter Daszak is still out there. He has not, to my knowledge, been called before Congress to give testimony. But then documents start to be uncovered under Freedom of Information, showing that Anthony Fauci had late-night calls about uh, the, the virus, or sorry, coronavirus, when, or the COVID virus, when he was talking with people, they agreed that this was lab created. But then miraculously, they all signed a letter that it wasn't. And, but then we now know that they did believe that it was from a lab. But then suddenly people start getting huge multi-million dollar grants. These very same scientists who came from the lab in all probability, but then certainly didn't come from the lab. They switched. Could it have been because they received multi-millions of dollars from Anthony Fauci and the U.S. Public Health Service? They've never been brought in to give testimony. But the fact that they were given this money, the fact that six out of seven CIA analysts said this came from a lab in Wuhan, but then were given money, and now they changed their mind, but we have whistleblowers coming forward, including a, a CIA whistleblower, and we have Defense Department whistleblowers, and we have State Department whistleblowers. So now, all the different people who are telling us this came from nature and was an accident 
Now we're showing quite the opposite. This was manufactured by, by it was paid for by Anthony Fauci, yet before Congress he said, Senator Paul, you do not know what you're saying. You know, you are completely wrong. Well, no. Uh, Senator Rand Paul was right. Fauci lied repeatedly. And now all these different pieces of evidence are coming forward. So, the World Health Organization was a part of a cover-up. They have yet to do an honest, objective investigation, but individuals have, including this woman who wrote a book about this. So, it works this way. What we can prove, absolutely, is the U.S. funded the gain-of-funding. Research has been doing so for a long time. Clear back to 2000. That there were patents that were gotten on the virus, and therefore there were patents on the vaccines. But how can you have a vaccine that's patented to fight a disease that has not yet been discovered in the public? Well, that's a big red flag. That's like saying, hold on a second, um, I've got a vaccine for a disease that you haven't gotten yet, but you will. Uh, Bill Gates says you're going to get it, and every person on earth. He said all 7 billion have to be vaccinated. And he's sure that it will be uh, effective and safe. Well, it proved not to be effective nor safe. And now we have 500,000 dead Americans from that vaccine. And we have a whole lot of people, how many we do not know, but it's estimated that one in 10 will have some form of heart condition like myocarditis. We have all these athletes dropping dead. We have young people dropping dead who otherwise wouldn't, who are not at risk. And yet, the people in charge at the World Health Organization have still refused to acknowledge that they participated in a cover-up. They've also for decades been supporting uh, what is considered illegal research on human beings in Africa and overseeing that, and no criticism of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or Bill Gates who sponsored that uh, research. So why don't you take us on a tour of what you know about the World Health Organization doing a treaty, in my opinion, this would be like Luckily Luciano or Al Capone writing a treaty of what constitutes legalities in organized crime. I see this as terrible, and the fact that legislators and journalists and people who have the power and resources to expose this corruption and, and completely defund the World Health Organization are instead empowering it, what might be the most dangerous piece of legislation in world history involving our country. If I am wrong, please challenge me now with your facts. The forum is yours. Well, I'm certainly not going to disagree with the word that you said. I, I am in full agreement. Uh, I'll try to take it further. Um, a lot of times when people can't seem to make sense of what they're hearing and seeing and reading, uh, it's because they have a preconceived assumption. Okay? The World Health Organization is not put in place to improve your health. The international health regulations are not about health. If you actually read them, if you just read the subtitles and the articles, you would realize that it's actually um, the international um, compliance uh, monitoring uh, reporting, emergency declaring, uh, fear-mongering regulations. It's, they're not discussing, you know, how doctors would make people healthier. How this all came to be 
is really tied into biological weapons research, as you pointed out, but also a misguided uh, assumption by relatively poor nations around the world in, in regards to what happened at the beginning of 2021. If you could suspend the things that you know about the jabs now and go back to early 2021, 20, the nations felt that you know these jabs were going to save everyone. And they were supposed to be rolled out where frontline workers, doctors, nurses, that sort of thing, who th were thought to be vulnerable, as well as people maybe in, in, you know, elder people in senior homes and things like that, or people with quote unquote comorbidities, that around the world, they would get first dibs on these jabs. And then the next uh, vulnerable group of people would be selected and they would be rolled out. But that's not what happened. What happened was the wealthy nations bought up, you know, 10 jabs per person, and there wasn't enough production to go around. And so the relatively poor nations felt that they were being treated unfairly. Now, you have to suspend your knowledge and, and put yourself in the position of them believing that they needed these jabs as much as they might have needed food and water. And, and they felt that the wealthy nations were hoarding this valuable commodity. So they called for a second session of the World Health Assembly um, exactly two years ago, um, November 30th 30, uh, and, and December 1st. And the declaration that they made two years ago was they wanted to the WHO to lead negotiations that would result in an international agreement that was legally binding to ensure equitable access to pandemic-related products. So these negotiations are not questioning the validity or the effectiveness or you know how you actually become healthy if you've taken ill. This is a trade dispute. And there are currently a, a lot of articles circulating, and there have been for quite some time, that the African nations are not happy that there are only able to produce about 1% of the world's vaccines. They want investment so they can make these biological weapons on their own. They don't want to be beholden to the 10 or so large pharmaceutical companies that manufacture these poisonous products. They want to be able to make their own and make their own profits from them. So what's I think you asked me what's in the quote-unquote treaty, they're not calling it an agreement. Well, it started out as amendments to the international health regulations where both the African nations and Bangladesh put forth a very similar proposal, if you want to call it solution or a different proposal. What's being discussed in those negotiations, which are separate, interrelated but separate, is what they call a pathogen access and benefit sharing system. Now, this actually comes out of the Convention for Biological Diversity, again from 1992. Now, in, in the natural health world, which I've spent not, not as long as you, but I've spent 30 years in, in natural health, in, in indigenous cultures, if they have knowledge of 
plants and botanicals and, and you know, therapies and treatments, they wanted to protect that intellectual property from being raided by pharmaceutical companies who will come in, learn about some plant, you know, snatch a chemical compound, alter it just a tiny little bit so that they can patent it and then sell it as a pharmaceutical. Well, there's supposed to be a system by which if um, companies gain access to that wisdom, they have to share the benefits. And quite frankly, that system's not working out very well, but it's the concept under which they're talking about a pathogen access and benefit sharing system. Hopefully you can see the parallel. Nations, it started, I believe, with Indonesia um, not wanting to share a flu virus years ago that was um, found in Indonesia because they saw it as a, a government uh, property, a resource, um, something that was valuable because it is. If, if companies can turn that into injectable you know, vaccines, um, they make billions of dollars. And so this really came to the front when Botswana and South Africa identified what most people now have come to call the Omicron variant of SARS-CoV-2. When they discovered that, they shared the samples and the genomes with the world. And rather than um, getting any kind of benefit for giving the world access to that pathogen information, they were greeted with travel restrictions that hurt their economy. And I think that really paints these negotiations. That is what they're negotiating. They were unhappy that they did you know, what they feel was the right thing. They found something that they felt was worthy of sharing with the world, and they immediately did so. And they didn't get any benefits. They, they were harmed by the economic uh, restrictions that were put on their nation. And, and so that is what is guiding the view of the relatively poorer nations. So in this pathogen access and benefit sharing system, which is not what they wanted, this is what was the negotiating response from the developed nations. Their take on it is, well, they want the poor nations to go searching for pathogens and build laboratory networks so that they can analyze those pathogens, determine the genomic sequences, send those that information to the central WHO hub in Geneva or Berlin so that you know companies can make whatever drugs or jabs or pandemic response products they come up with. And they offered to give the WHO 10% of whatever products are produced for free and 10% at a uh, reduced price. And so uh, hopefully your audience can see that what we're dealing with here is a battle between pandemic profiteering and Marxist command and control of the means of production. Nobody's talking about health. This is about money. This is a venture capital perspective. And the first clue from that came over a year ago when the Indonesian health minister at the B20 meeting, not the G20 in, in Bali, but the B20, which was the business leader meeting that kind of goes along parallel with it, he let out 
something new, quite frankly, before it was fully authorized. He mentioned to the audience about the pandemic fund that the United States and a number of other countries had started with the World Bank. And he said they have a multi-billion dollar fund. This is a wonderful business opportunity. Go invest. And by go invest, what he meant was invest in companies that make products that are related to pandemics. Because if this system gets set up, there's going to be all kinds of new pathogens with pandemic potential that are discovered because they'll be scouring every person's nasal cavity or other orifice. They'll be in your veterinarian's office testing your dog and cat stool sample. They'll be in your chicken coop looking for bird flu or your you know, pigsty looking for swine flu or your septic system or your wastewater treatment plant looking for you know, some form of polio or some other variant of whatever. You know, in hospitals looking for um, the very best pathogens that have become antibiotic resistant, they're looking to generate and create a pandemic industry. They've already, I mean, they've already done it, but they want to take it up by an order of magnitude because they've found that it's very profitable to, you know, scare people into believing that injecting a biological weapon in their arm is going to protect them from these new pathogens with pandemic potential that may be found in nature or may be supercharged in the laboratory. Call it dual use research of concern if you want or gain of function, but it's biological warfare by any other name. And so in December of last year, 2022, Congress passed and Joe Biden signed the National Defense Authorization Act and buried in there is the funding for what the Indonesian health minister was talking about, the now called the World Bank Pandemic Fund, the United States government, through the Defense Department's global health security agenda, not, you know, individual human being health, but global health security, which is just another name for biological warfare, they've pledged up to a billion dollars a year, not to the WHO, but to this World Bank Pandemic Fund. And they've already started dispersing hundreds of millions of dollars this year to various nations around the world to build out the other fake, which I call the Pharmaceutical Hospital Emergency Industrial Complex, PHEIC. They want to be able to create and generate fear by declaring a public health emergency of international concern. That's one fake. And they want to funnel all of this money through the WHO and this uh, pandemic agreement to have tens of billions of dollars of public money be laundered through, you know, the health organization to do um, biological warfare. And if you haven't realized yet, um, you and I and everyone in your audience, um, we are the targets of that warfare because they feel that there are too many useless eaters and they're committing the crime of manipulating everyone's mind into getting people to volunteer to participate 
in their warfare. Um, they've convinced billions of people to voluntarily roll up their sleeves and be injected with the biological weapon. I appreciate that insight. I would only take one issue that you said. I have a different perspective. As of yet, I have not seen any evidence in proper context that their primary goal is depopulation. I found their primary goal is control over virtually everything because this is not an isolated situation. Who sponsors uh, the agenda for the World Health Organization and the United Nations and the world's, uh, the world's major banking community? It's the World Economic Forum, those so-called Davos people that no one has paid attention to for a long time. And who sits on their board? Well, some of the most powerful people in the world, including the person that controls more money than a hundred Saudi Arabias, uh, and that is uh, the the BlackRock Corporation's founder. So when you start connecting the dots, who owns all the pharmaceutical companies? Who owns the labs doing the research? Who owns and controls the media? Who controls the industries, every industry? Well, it's these primarily these six organizations, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, Berkshire Hathaway, and Fidelity. They control the stock of the company. They control the board of directors. They control the policies. Therefore, we go out and you might be a person that wants to go uh, have a vegan meat, you know, one of these uh, meatless hamburgers, but they own the biotechnology that's creating that. They own, they own the genetic sequencing of that hamburger. You want a, a cola? No matter which cola you want, they own stock in the company. They control. They control the media. Hence, you hear one narrative always, one voice, and you'll hear them. The synchronicity is amazing where you'll have the same identical words stated by every single major media in a given day. They'll use the same term. So I don't look at the World Health Organization or the UN that created the World Health Organization as separate entities. I look at them as all one, uh, under one control, but having different pieces of the puzzle that they represent. Now, I would like you to tell us what you know about the head of the World Health Organization, who had no background in health, isn't a medical doctor, doesn't have a PhD in public health, um, and yet he is obligated by China to help put him in power and Bill Gates, two of the major donors to the World Health Organization. And wasn't it this same Bill Gates who invested in a pharmaceutical company that was used in COVID and made $500 million more or less profit. He bragged about it. And he had bragged about previously investing billions of dollars and getting 10 times the money back using a clever strategy, if I'm understanding it, where he uses his nonprofit foundation to make investments which are considered benevolent and philanthropic, but it ends up making a profit on the backside of that. And so he continues to have enormous wealth, but enormous influence. Now, is he a medical doctor, a PhD? Did he graduate even from college? Is he known as being a nice guy by his former workers, including his former 
partner, Paul Allen. And you have to understand, look at the person. Look at, the, look at his, what he's said. And now look at the fact that he was wrong in his projections. So how many people got a vaccine because, well, if Bill Gates says you got to get it, I'll get it. Or Rachel Maladell says, get it, you won't get the virus, you won't spread it to other people, you won't go to the hospital, and you won't die. All wrong. But you got to understand who pays their bills and what ads on television or radio pay all of the bills, pharmaceuticals, and who controls the pharmaceuticals. Look at Bill Gates and others. Look at BlackRock. Look at Vanguard. They control everything. So the whole idea that we should sign any treaty with this group that I consider a criminal organization, my belief, is, uh, is really not being challenged out there. Everyone thinks it's a good idea. And it's not. It's a terrible idea because the people involved, and they, look, all of COVID was found to be lie. Everything about it. Not a single thing they said turned out to be true. It was not infecting all people. It did not represent the same outcome for all people. For comorbidity people who were at end of life normally in Italy, in nursing homes there, yes, they had end-stage emphysema, cancer, obesity, diabetes, and they died. What about in nursing homes where they had no COVID, they brought someone in who had COVID, it spread COVID, and they died. But if you take out the people who had the actual risk, the risk to everyone else was under 1% about what would be a severe flu season. And, but we had a pandemic, a false positive test from a study of PCR that should never have been used. I was a professional friend of Kerry Mollis, who got the Nobel Prize for covering it. And yet everything came upon a completely and grossly flawed model. The model was done at Imperial College. And not only was it done there, but the person who did this and was accepted without question by the World Health Organization and countries all over the world except Sweden and Japan, and uh, he was wrong about other models he had created before this. And so when finally a group of very orthodox epidemiologists in Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford University looked at this saying, this is all wrong. Then 75,000 scientists, I being one of them, signed the Great Barrington Declaration saying, you're wrong. Your model's wrong. So therefore, everything coming from your model or your dictates, three foot standing. There was never a scientific study proving you should have three foot or six foot or 12 foot standing. Wearing masks, completely contraindicated. All the studies showed that you were more damaged by masks than not. And, uh, and all the other things that they were telling us actually increase the infectivity and the disease and death rate. Their drug, remdesivir, one of the worst drugs ever created. And yet the one Anthony Fauci recommended all the hospitals used, everything they did was wrong. But who supported all that? The World Health Organization at every turn. So why in the hell should we support anything that those individuals who've been wrong about everything historically? I mean, they've been wrong about so much. Why should we suddenly believe today we're going to wipe clean everything in your background? You can start over and run the world in its health programs. Now, you look at New York State. You look at this, you know, the governor uh, lost on for law in New York State that would have made it mandatory for you to follow whatever health policy rules they wanted, and it was so broadly based in, the, in their 
law, they could enter your home, force you to be vaccinated, or keep you a prisoner in your home, or they could choose to take you without any due process to an internment camp that these are intended to be built all over New York State. So you go there, and they're modeled upon the Australian internment camp, and there are videos of that, and you ought to see them. And the internment camp in Australia, by scale, was modeled upon the Chinese internment camp, which goes on for miles. You could put a million people in a Chinese internment camp. And in the Australian camp, you had no rights whatsoever. You could not go out. The food was brought to you. There was a porch in what was about this little bigger than a prison cell. And you could go on the porch, but you couldn't cross a line to talk with your neighbor. You couldn't go out in the road and take a walk. If you did, you were stayed longer, and people were in that internment camp who were completely healthy and repeatedly tested negative for COVID. So why were they there? Because that's what happens when you have vicious, fascistic regimes like you do in Australia, New Zealand, the United States, and we're in New York. Now, they won on appeal. The governor had an attorney general overturn that uh, victory or for the citizens, and now it's being appealed one last time to the Supreme Court in New York State. And uh, if we lose there, then New York is going to become no better than China. So the World Health Organization has not complained about any of this. They supported everything. So in the time remaining, tell us right now, please, James, what you know about the World Health Organization and the errors and mistakes they've made that have been costly to people that were wrong, that they never apologized for, and no one said, hey, if you're making all these mistakes, you shouldn't be in charge of anything. The form is yours. In, in the 76-year history of the World Health Assembly, um, they have absolutely completely and totally failed to perform their fundamental duty their obligation in the who constitution in article 21 it's the world health assembly not the world health organization that is the governing body of the who when the delegates get together once a year they have the authority to craft regulations and set worldwide standards and astonishingly, they have completely failed to do so. Now, there are five categories that they could have written regulations for over the past 75 years. They have the authority to write regulations to determine how the cause of death is determined. They have the authority to write the regulations to determine diagnostic techniques. You mentioned the PCR Complete and total fraud was permitted because they never set any standards. They have the authority to write regulations and standards for product purity. Well, if you've heard stories of the many contaminants, not to mention, you know, DNA plasmids in the jams, it's, it's partly due, if not mostly due, to the fact that they have failed to ever set standards and regulate that industry. And not the least of which is the fifth one, the standards and regulations for advertising. Had they done so, there would not have been blank inserts in these jabs, and maybe people would have been able to see um, the 
problems you know that these might cause now i'm not advocating that they should now suddenly go and put those regulations in place they've been negotiating for almost two years now and they're not even thinking about doing that the depth of their failure to understand what actually happened over the past four years is part and parcel with where the money comes from 85 percent of the money that they work with is donated from nations and corporations and foundations and they are not in a position to regulate the hand that feeds them that is the problem they are a captured regulatory body just like the fda and the cdc and all of the other ones that you might want to name they do the bidding of those who bring the money to the table and so as a um, governing body the world health assembly has been co-opted they're negotiating a venture capital deal to fund this enormous biological warfare industry their their power under their constitution and article 21 to write regulations has been corrupted beyond belief and the only answer at this point is that they should be abolished the entire operation is racketeering their money laundering the the various things that they have done in the past you know the evidence out there is for other people to be more expert about it than i am but what they are doing is essentially organized crime and I've they're trying to negotiate organized crime into an international agreement i fully agree let me just add a few things here before we sign off the world health organization has been held responsible for the mismanagement of the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, the H1N1 swine flu debacle, gross conflicts of interest with the pharmaceutical industry. How can you accept money from a pharmaceutical industry that's making a vaccine or a drug and then be critical of it when it makes so many mistakes as what happened? And also, uh, and then the many criticisms during the past two years of the pandemic where they did virtually everything wrong. But then there's another part of this as well. If all this goes as they hope it will, there'll be no information controlled by outside groups. There'll be total censorship. Data manipulation will become the new norm. There's no room for honest scientific debate. There will be no checks and balances with it between the World Health Organization's ruling, rulings based on the treaty for corrective action. If they've made a mistake, no independent medical or health bodies can say, hey, you made a huge mistake and put the public at risk. That won't exist. The issue of full immunity and no accountability, such as the untested and poorly tested medical interventions, such as the vaccines, uh, gives you an example. You can't sue anyone now, no matter how bad and egregious it is. We've got 500,000 dead Americans. There are millions dead worldwide from the vaccines and tens of millions injured, and it doesn't matter. You can't sue anyone. So why would you allow a group that makes itself identified from being responsible for bad decisions, the decision makers. So these are threats to fundamental human rights, dignity, and the basic democratic principles. So I want to thank you for the work you've done, outstanding scholarship. We really appreciate it. And hopefully people will go to your blog site and look at your work and say, wow, I didn't know any of this. Because you're not going to find this in the mainstream media. 
They've been totally captured. You're not going to find it in any of the governmental agencies. They've been co-opted as well. So, James, keep up the good work. We look forward to another conversation. Thank you so very much. Appreciate the opportunity. My guest, James Raguski, R-O-G-U-S-K-I. You can go to his site, wonderful website, lots of information at jamesroguski.com. And his blog is jamesraguski.substack.com. I'm Gary Nall. I want to thank you all for taking the time. Have a nice day. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know.